Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sam Paleman. We're at the Jackson Family Facility in McMinnville. It's uh, May 11th, 2022. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. Absolutely. And the first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? Um, I grew up in the Midwest, and so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I went to school in Minnesota, and it was kind of like foregone conclusion that I would ferment dairy for the rest of my life if I stayed there. Um, I was kind of over it. Uh, I, you know, was always really into the sciences mm-hmm. and really loved my micro classes and my micro professors. And so I kind of went down the route of fermentations microbiology and, you know, did a whole bunch with the spreadability of frosting and you know, General Mills was, was the big scene in Minneapolis. Um, so I did a whole bunch with that and just or shelf stability of processed cheese and just was dizzy with, with knowing useless knowledge. Um, and I had a professor who thankfully had been a professor at OSU out here. And so she put me in touch with the fellas actually out at Pelican Brewing and I was going to do an internship with them between my junior and senior year of college. And the Oregon State is on the quarter system and I was on the semester system. And so the timing didn't totally line up, but I had come out to the area and I loved it and was just itching to get away. Um, and I literally started going through the like phone book essentially um, of wineries in the Willamette Valley and I wound up at Argyle for that summer so I didn't make it past the A's Um, and it was like I mean you couldn't not fall in love with it working with Rollin and I worked under Willie Lunn and Remy so people who are like still kicking around to the day um, you couldn't not love it it was the cowboy way and so much fun and we were going to Thirsty Thursday games at, you know, what was, I can't even remember what the name of the park was at that point for the Beavers. Mm. Um, and it was just fun and like, you know, trying all these great wines and food and the the industry right away. I, you know, I had to go back and finish one more year, but I was hooked and, you know, it was, I'm using my, my science side, but like, these people in this community, it just right away was, that was the way I wanted to go. So that was why wine. So yeah. you mentioned the people in the community. What about the, as you started to work, especially as you saw what was going on in Argyle, what about the work? How did, what was your kind of reaction to what the work was like? So I, you know, I, I kind of always felt like if I didn't do this, weirdly, I would do something, you know, either they were two different levers to pull. So it was either gonna be like something artsy, but I'm not artistic at all. Um, I just appreciate it and like it and whatever. Um, And then the other one was the like, the way to like like track in history, like what you were doing at the given time. And that was really cool to me to, you know, it's still really cool to me to, you know, 
pull up like a, a wine and remember the, the team, the vintage, what was going on. Um, and there's a lot of, of fairly, there's both the instant gratification that you get in, in winemaking and then like you get to revisit and see how it evolves over time, which I thought was really cool. And initially working at Argyle, I was lowest person on the, on the, on the rung and it was a lot of cleaning, but there was all that instant gratification that came from that and being part of like, okay, you're the first step in the process, but knowing that there were all these other people that were helping along was pretty, pretty cool in the winery. Um, so I, I still really like pressure washing. It's, it's like one of my favorite activities in the winery. Um, I think being an oral, like a dental hygienist would be great, except you're in somebody's mouth doing that. Um, but the pressure washing, I don't know, there's just something so gratifying about doing all of that and knowing you're setting, setting things up for success. And yeah, it's a, it's a very big pillar for the whole thing. What was your knowledge, impression of wine before that, before your visit to Oregon? What kind of wine background did you have? So it's not like I grew up like, oh, drinking wine every night with family. Um, you know, my uncle was really into it, and but I remember drinking like, like Asti and like those kind of things and hating it. And, and now I look back and I'm like, oh, I hate it for a totally different reason. Um, and so like I would have sips, but it wasn't, part, like it wasn't common, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, it was like beer culture. Um, and so like I had had a little bit, but not, not to the extent as soon as coming out here and, you know, thankfully again, working with a team that was like so excited to share and we played options all the time. So I didn't have, so I was a sponge and like that was, that was actually in some ways, I think to my benefit that it was just all so new and I was just, you know, grabbing at whatever um, I could get my hands on. So it wasn't something that like I grew up or like the family wasn't in the business really. Um, so it, I think it served me well. What were your impressions then of the wines you were tasting out here? Um, so I mean right away like Pinot was, Pinot was king and it was and like bubbles being there was was a big thing, and I think that's where I right away just realized how different you could like one one grape could be just so different in the hands of so many different people or so many different places, and you know now working for a company like Jackson, where we have brands down in California tasting their Pinot like the same grape so wildly different and so it just to me that was the biggest takeaway it was just how different wine could be mm -hmm. and you know this one one thing that seemed so simple like from like a common man and an outsider looking in it was just like oh no like this can be something like really really special mm -hmm. um, and just again like how many different ways you can kind of look at the same thing and come up with something completely different every single time. 
So you mentioned you came out to Argyle and had, you went back to finish school. Mm -hmm. So after finishing school, what was your what was your next step? I came back to Argyle. So um, I, as I was leaving, they were looking. Um, so actually, as I was leaving, Remy had been there and she had been kind of heading up the lab. So I had worked under her for that vintage, or not vintage for that summer. Um, and she then was moving on, kind of to launch her own project mm -hmm. and to go work at a different winery. Uh, and they needed somebody to kind of be in charge of the lab for, for that vintage, and that was 2005. Uh, I still had to go back to school, but I called up my friend from school, Nate Klosterman, who wound up is still their winemaker. Mm -hmm. So I called up him and I was like, hey, this winery in Oregon needs a winemaker, or not a winemaker, ultimately, yes, uh, a lab person for this vintage. I think his girlfriend was pretty pissed at me at the time <laughs> that I like made them uproot their lives and move out to Oregon. But he came out, took that job. Um, but meanwhile, like, you know, Art Argyle had been like, oh, okay, like, if you want a job when you finish school, you've got one. Like, we've got a place for you. So as soon as I, you know, it was really hard to finish up a, a senior year when you're like, I don't want to learn anything more about cows. I'm good. Um, but, you know, and, and then I, like, I kind of had a little bit more intent on, like, what I really wanted to focus on that year because it was like, okay, how much can I, like, build on what I, you know, how much theory can I learn on the practical stuff that I saw and like try to like peel back the onion layers a little bit. Um, so that was, you know, it and like, you know, that whole year, because by that point I was 21, um, that whole year it was just like finding other people who wanted to taste wines with me um, and who just like wanted to go to Certix or like wanted to go to Byerly's and Lund's and like grab wines and, you know, kind of make my own little tasting um, team mm -hmm. um, that we would just kind of gather around. So that was really fun. Uh, and then I came back out to Argyle, like right around Memorial Day weekend, right after I had mm -hmm. finished up school and was there for a bit and then moved on as we all kind of hop around. I'm sure you've learned that in all of your interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and then I hopped over to Domain Serene for a while so that was that was the next next step on my path mm -hmm. um, and there I was their lab and QC manager I think was my title I can't even remember anymore um, and so I worked under Tony Reinders initially and Drew Voigt so that was 2008 um, and so that was that was a fun time um, so I was Tony's last hire there, and then it was his first hire when he went on to do his own thing with Tendril and Tony Reinders Consulting. So I worked under Tony and Drew during kind of a weird transition time at um, Domain Serene. But I mean, I went to Domain Serene because it was Domain Serene, and when they had this job come up, I was like, oh, I can use both both aspects like they're looking for somebody who's going to do QC which at that point in the valley was kind of like new and nuanced of like looking like realizing that like we were going to have more regulations mm -hmm. and like the FDA and like all these things and so I was like oh I had I had HACCP classes like I had all of this in school I you know was under like the food science um, 
area and, and so I was like, oh, I can use this, like I'll be the perfect applicant. And it was it was great. Like again, I worked with an awesome team um, of, of folks who are still all in this valley in different roles and it's actually always pretty cool to like kind of see where like, you know, we were all like the grubby, like basically back of house kids, like, um, you know, being the dishwashers or whatever. Um, to just see that, you know, one of like my best friends from working in those days when, again, it was a little bit of a weird time at that point um, as we were transitioning to new winemakers and, you know, like all of us were brand new in, in that winery and like trying to carry on like a, a pretty strong tradition already and not really knowing how things had been historically done, but knowing that we all really liked the wines, mm -hmm. like I loved their Chardonnay which was part of the reason I went there. Um, but one of my best friends from that time is now the winemaker over at Shehalem. And, you know, she was a bridesmaid Katie. and, yep, Katie was a bridesmaid for me. Like, we lived pretty close. She actually introduced me to my husband. So, like, just a very small little world that, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a great world and, you know, it's, it's such a fun industry and mm -hmm. kind of that was a great next step and you know led me to working with Tony which mm -hmm. led me to you know working at King and ultimately back here and working with Tony again so it's just it's a weird world yeah I'm going to come back to the set of the sequential because I'm I, I, yeah. the path through is really interesting to me but I want to back up for a second when you when you graduated when you yeah. came back you had one you had, a, you had a summer of experience you had the enthusiasm you had the excitement what did you think what were you thinking like what if, if what, what did you want to do what was your sort of dream scenario or your I'm going to go back to Oregon and I'm going to be uh, I wanted to be in the lab like I you know I just I really I still wanted to figure out like what was making everything tick kind of thing and the that was still to me and it, it still now it's kind of changed um but to me at that point it was still like okay like i you know i i think i still thought you needed to use your degree <laughs> um not that you don't but um i i thought like oh god i like got this degree i need to use it and like show that like it was money well spent or, mm -hmm. or something. Um, I, I wanted to be in the lab and I wanted, you know, cause I always saw that like everything passed through the lab. So you had this great opportunity to taste everything as it came through and like, you know, try and calibrate like what you were tasting with what you were seeing in analysis. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be in the lab just cause I also, I thought, I think I thought not not wrong um, that that was a path to like ultimately being like the assistant winemaker or the winemaker um, but I just I thought of it as so much like the brain trust or like the bird's eye view of everything that was going on so yeah I like that that's interesting yeah um, so you mentioned from Argyle to Domain Serene mm -hmm. um, tell, tell me about that as a, you mentioned as a, as a good place an interesting an interesting time to be there uh, Compare contrast for me. What was different about Domain Serene? What was the what were the what was the stuff you're like? Oh, I didn't expect this. So like, like I kind of alluded to, Argyle was like the cowboy method. Like so much of Rollin is like the lifeblood of that 
place. I don't know if it's still that way anymore. Um, but like everything was like, oh, just grab a picture and go do it. And like there was like, I don't know, like it, it was so much like just shooting from the hip, like mm -hmm. the whole time, just like, oh, we'll figure it out. Um, like, Domaine Serene was just, it was a little more refined. It, I mean, you look at the two places and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, was, it was a little more refined of like, okay, this is what we do. It just, everything is like pretty and polished. And they, the two were strikingly different. And then like at the same time, Argyle gave me such a wonderful foundation of cleanliness because of the sparkling aspect of it. Just like, it's not clean enough until you've like cleaned it five times. Um, so it was, it was, it was still like as clean as Domain Serene was. It was like, oh God, like it can only be cleaner. Like we have to clean it again. Um, but in some ways, Argyle was almost so physically demanding and hard for the sake of like this is how we do it and this is the cowboy method and then you go to this place that like you can want for nothing in a lot of ways where like oh we have all the fanciest equipment and all the fanciest tools um, and everything is like very thoughtful and like just everything is like oh take a minute like let's slow this down you know even when I was there like it's like some of the silly things which are also just plain silly of you know we would bottle everything as shiners and then we would come back and you know put the labels on and like package them and like everything was just one metered step at a time and not saying that Argyle was chaotic at all um, it was more like oh let's just let's like throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks um, it was a little bit more like, you know, this is this is how we do it, and it was just a little a little bit more chaos, which was a, a fun way to like, you know, it was. I think I still think it was like the the greatest gateway in of like this is just a fun atmosphere and like, it's, you know, it's just goofy as opposed to like so metered and serious and like refined. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if I had gone into, again, being like a commoner or whatever, um, I don't know if I had started at Serene if I would have had the same trajectory or the same love affair with like the community of, that it just, it would have been almost too serious mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, they were, they were strikingly different. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned obviously you hired being hired there by Tony Reinders near the end mm -hmm. of his, his his time at Domain Serene. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about working with him and, and what prompted you to want to sort of follow him as he started his own project. Um, so he, you know, good Wisconsin boy. I'm from Wisconsin, so we had that in common like right away. Um, and I think like you know a lot of it was just like this honesty and openness to like include me in, and again, I when I went to Domain Serene, I was in the lab, so I was the, the heartbeat of a lot of that winery. 
um, you know, all the monthly analysis would come through, so all the samples were there, and so he would come in and like be tasting through and just, he's a chatty, mm -hmm. chatty fella, um, bouncing ideas off of or tasting and saying, oh, taste this. So I think it was like that, the like the inclusion, mm -hmm. like right away, um, and a lot of that happened. Like it was such a you know, the timing I can't entirely remember how it happened, but I believe um, editing can fix this. Um, that I believe it was you know I, I started there, both Drew and Tony were there for a while, and then I believe. Drew went on to Shay, and so Tony was there without an assistant winemaker. And so he just kind of, like, would need some people to bounce ideas off of. And he had this very young, very new team that, like, you know, but he needed someone to, like, just kind of be there to, mm -hmm. to like, you know, be, you know, he's just thinking out loud as he's tasting things and it just, it was, it was nice to be included in a lot of that. Um, and so when my time at Domain Serene was over, it was just, it was such a, like an easy fit because I, like I knew he, like, he was open to me like slowly learning and like coming up with him and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, oh, you need to be the master of all these things right away. It was more like, okay, like, like I was just very slow and still metered in my, like before I gained the efficiency of like doing things quick. Like I, I weirdly remember when I went to work with him at Tendril, you know, saying like, oh, I don't know if I'm the best hire. Like I'm not very fast on the forklift. And like, I was gonna be his only person. And him saying, like, I don't need you to drive the forklift down the highway. And it was like, oh, that's true. Like, I'll be very, very slow and, like, I'll double check my stacking, like, a million times and, and all of that. So it just, he, like, kind of offered that comfort and, and, like, you know, it got to the point where, like, very, very frequently, like, Tony and I, like, didn't need to talk to, like, move a stack of barrels. It would just be, like, it was a very orchestrated like dance of like, okay, I'm gonna go here, you're gonna go here, and like just, but like I grew so much with that, and like he just kind of allowed the slow progression of like me figuring out like, okay, I really wanna like go down this rabbit hole for a while, and he'd be like, okay, let, let's talk about it, and mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. it was it worked well. You went from two obviously pretty established places to a kind of a, to a startup. Oh yeah. Tell me about what that's like being part of a project as it's getting going. Oh god, it was it was a lot. Um, it was very much a choose your own adventure, <laughs> which I loved. Um, it was you know I could be as involved or not involved in a lot of things, which was pretty cool. Um, like helping with like email blasts and like just like, you know, helping do a lot more of like their tax filing and that kind of stuff, which was which was interesting. And he had all of these clients he was making wine for. So like learning kind of that, which has served me like immensely well with Jackson. Um, but it was, it was both like, there was a lot of freedom in that of like, okay, 
and like I can do as much or as, as little as that but then it was like I was the only employee <laughs> so if I wasn't tapping no one was um, and so like you know now I look back and I'm like oh that was a perfect job like I had no direct reports there were no meetings all the time you know Sorry. It's um, the dream. Well, just hope Jackson doesn't watch that. Um, but um, there was, you know, like, he was always really encouraging of like, oh, go meet with Daniel Fay from RP and like talk to him at, you know, such and such vineyard or like um, took me up to Washington because he had some stuff going on up there. He was like a part owner in a vineyard up there. So it was, it was nice because I had a lot of flexibility, but I am also a very type A person, so I like a little bit more structure is what I, and like I, I think I enforced more structure than even he really wanted. Um, so there was, there was a little bit of that give and take, um, but like it was, like I learned so much in doing that because I had to do it all myself. Um, again, it was, it like I, you know, I worked a vintage, in 2010 was my first vintage with him. And then I went and worked down in Australia. And I, I had always, like, again, when I went to work with Tony, I had all this lab experience and like a lot of like behind the scenes. And I was very proficient in that and was happy to do that. But when I went to work in Australia in 2011, I like intentionally said like I don't want to work in the lab like I know how to do it like I'm happy to be like like backup for the lab but like I need to like like drag some hoses and get like quicker and more proficient at this and like you know feel like I can hang um, and and so like that's what I did and like I really just focused and like it was like three of us on the night shift like running a bubbles program and like you know, it was it was brutal to like I got put through my paces, but I came back like kind of ready to be like, okay, I can, you know, not only can I run any analysis that Tony deems us needing to do at like our little operation, but I can also like I feel a lot more competent and like pulling this like topping line apart mm -hmm. or like you know you know, bulldogging these barrels by myself. Um, so yeah, it was. It was good to be alone and kind of be like, I'm I'm the only person who's like, I've got to own this. I've got to learn how to do it. Did that change for you in your mind, kind of career path or trajectory? Did you start yeah. thinking about things differently? Yeah. At that point, what, what, what at that point became more of a focus for you? Winemaker, <laughs> very much. Um, it like, because I mean, as much as like I value a lab and like the brain trust and all of that stuff, he like really that like those vintages there, and I always feel bad because I say it to our lab team and our lab interns, um, as as valuable as a lot of that information that comes out of the lab is, I could do my job without it. Like Tony, really like I have never. Like we tasted so much all the time, um, and did so many things purely on taste. And then we'd check our numbers afterwards. Like there were so many acid trials, like on every single fermenter. And then we'd be like, "Oh, 
does that make sense after the fact? Mm -hmm. Like, we like where it's where it is, like balance-wise, but like, does it make sense? Is it going to be micro-safe for it, like down the road? Um, so that like, as it kind of changed me from like, oh, I need to like just care about numbers and things are black and white. It made it a lot like the gradient. It like blurred the edges a lot more. Um, Mm-hmm. to make it feel more like, okay, there's there's a lot more give and take here than, than just looking at black and white numbers of, well, it's through ML, so we gotta do this. Mm-hmm. And, and just, it made it a lot less recipe. It made it a lot more like, we just gotta like kinda go where it's taking us. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the, like the big turning point and it was also the big turning point to knowing like I never wanted to do my own brands, um, that like that was not going to be a thing, that it was a lot of work and like just seeing how much it like see like I working there like I treated like every like dime like it was my own um, and I just was like oh this I never want to own my own brand that it was just, it became like too personal. Like I remember like, you know, like hosting tour groups out there and just like running the credit card machine and just feeling like, oh, if I didn't get, or like Tony and I tried to self like distribute for a while. And I remember like going and like lining up with all these reps, like sales reps at like different places in Portland and taking it so personal when people didn't take our wine. And like, you know, I, I think I had like lined up five appointments one, like one Friday. And I was like, you know, went into the day like, oh, if I get three placements, I'm getting happy. And after like the first one or two appointments, I was like, if I get one, I'm gonna be happy. Um, and I just, so it was not only the turning point like away from lab, but like also like the turning point away from like ever really wanting to do my own thing, just cause it was just, Mm-hmm. It was too much. It was it was way too much. Mm-hmm. It was interesting when you talk about that kind of like kind of having sort of having to push yourself away from recipe or push yourself away mm-hmm. from. I mean, obviously your science background, right? Your science background. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult for you to kind of mm-hmm. give up some of that control? Oh yeah, still is. You can ask my team. Um, that like it, like I still I still have to like check myself and remember like okay like all of these things like none of these things exist in a vacuum that like you have to kind of take all of the pieces in like this broader puzzle um and and kind of i mean you can ask my team now like it's so hard for me to like step away from like some of the puzzles that i really like and and realizing that like okay i've got to let this part go so that i can focus on this part that's actually the more important or like more important right now piece of that puzzle um, and and just it, it, I think it was also like a sense of pride thing of letting some of that go that like had been like my whole foundation or like my whole job had been like running these numbers and then realizing that I didn't always need these numbers was kind of like well then what was I doing for like 40 hours a week was was kind of like or like <laughs> and also like I think you know having worked for some folks who like I would you know pump out all these numbers and just be like oh here's like 
all of these free SO2s for the month. And then having people like be like, okay, I'll get to it in a week or two was like, then why did I do it? And, and realizing like, now I do that to my team. Because um, they're like, oh, I have so much to do. Um, and then, and it, so it was, it was hard because it was like, oh man, I'm becoming that person, but also I understand the value in, in some things and then some things are like, well, hey, if I can let something slide. And, but now like realizing that and realizing how frustrated it made me to like do a whole bunch of work and then not have somebody act on it. Um, I think I've tried um, to be better about communicating it to my team of like, hey, here's the order of priorities. If we have to let something slip, this is what we let slip. Um, or like we push to next week. Um, so yeah, it's, but it was, it was a really hard transition to be like this world of like, you know, you, you always have this vision of like, you're gonna be the ETS and like a lab coat and like people are gonna really care about your numbers all the time and realizing that like ultimately we can't like control so much of it that it's just kind of out of our hands and and realizing that was a was an interesting shift or that you just don't need it all that like smelling and tasting is so much more important mm -hmm. so what was next for you after tendril then uh, so then i went to king estate um which was a very interesting role so with king estate i um, oversaw their off-site production. Um, so I oversaw what we were making up in Washington as well as what we had been custom crushing at Union and Del Rio. Wow. So I hung out on the I-5 corridor a lot. <laughs> um, so it was a lot. Um, so it was the Acrobat and the North by Northwest brands that I really focused on and that was like it was a challenge for sure. Um, it was a challenge in the sense of like, yeah, you know, I'd always like eat, you know, with Tony and with Domain Serene, I had always like worked with like the highest quality and like these premium, like tiny lot ferments. Um, and now I was going to like 100 ton fermenters, like clothes top, like things that like, you're like, oh God, you don't do that to Pinot? Like, what are you doing? So it was it was a challenge, and it was a challenge I needed because it was it was kind of like well yeah you can make great wine if you're always afforded like the absolute best fruit and the best equipment and like all the time in the world and the massive footprint, but when you're all of a sudden tasked with like okay you have to get this through in three turns to get through your vintage, it like it was a, a new puzzle and like a new challenge and and it was like. I like, you know, and it's something that we talk about a lot as a team. Um, it was something that like I felt I wanted to do. Like I was making these brands that like a lot of my family back in Wisconsin or my friends in Minnesota or elsewhere either weren't seeing because it wasn't on the shelf or they couldn't afford. I mean, at the mainstream, I couldn't afford half of what we were making. And so it was, it was something that like I wanted to challenge to be like, I wanna be able to have my friends be able to see my wine and be able to afford my wine. Um, 
and understand what I do for a living. I think there, I still have friends or I still have family that are like, oh, can you do something in October? And I'm like, what are you doing? Where have you been? Um, and so just like getting them to understand what I'm doing in like a bottle form and be like, mm -hmm. you can go pick this up. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, it was a challenge to then totally flip the script and be making wines at like a volume, volume that I had never imagined and but get it out there and like make this like really high quality wine that you're like we're still representing like Oregon the Willamette Valley like Pinot Noir like and we're doing it at like a much larger scale and use equipment that like I didn't have any experience with but like micro oxygenation and oak adjuncts that like you know I always was, you, you know, you're just kind of taught to look down on those things. Um, and there's definitely a place, like, in a, like a time and a place to use some of those things. And just to like kind of add those tools to my arsenal was, was interesting. Like I've now, you know, we just dusted off the Mox machine for one of my blends here, and it wasn't in the same fashion that I had used it at King, but it was something that I was like, hey, I think this might actually work, and it did, and it was like, okay. And it was, you know, my team was like, what are you doing? And like, I've never seen this. Why are we doing this? And just kind of, you know, still trialing new things and trying to, like, polish things up and mm -hmm. get them ready. So, you know, not only was the winemaking part of working at King and with Acrobat completely different. Um, it also like allowed me the opportunity to do a lot more vineyard um, like exposure. So I worked really closely with their, I'm not sure if he's the director or president, with Ray Nuclo, right, who, yeah. was, who was great. Um, he's like, yeah, we, he's a wonderful man and just like, so like I have nothing but amazing things to say about my experience with him, but he taught me so much and he like gave me a lot of freedom to like just kind of go explore vineyards and just question everything and he was just, you know, it would take all these pictures and be like, what am I seeing? And so I kind of act, acted as like his like boots on the ground because we had a lot of area to cover and you know, I would be driving past all these vineyards as I'm going up and down the I-5 corridor, um, and pop into all of these places. And like, you know, I kind of felt like the narc a lot of the time, um, going into some of these different vineyards and being like, they say they don't have a mildew problem, but like, I'm taking pictures and I know they have a mildew problem, or like they're getting a lot more tonnage to the acre and like, you know, just kind of being there for, for like picks. And it like, I think being in that role where I was doing a lot of the winemaking side at various places, but also, you know, in like, you know, Walla Walla or like just different, like completely different areas that I hadn't, really had the time other than like a very cursory visit to a vineyard every once in a while but like really like studying these different places just made me realize more and more like 
how important like good vineyard management is um, and that like we all like say it and it always feels pretty much like a just something we're supposed to say of like oh the best wine starts in the vineyard but like out there like you just really like that experience and being in some of those vineyards like was just like oh my god no like it's night and day between like different vineyard management and different crop management and different like just night and day of like what we were getting the quality and yeah it was mm -hmm. it was great it was wonderful experience and like again like Ray gave me so much autonomy but then also would would be the heavy <laughs> of like he would drop the hammer it was never he was never leaving me out to be the the bad guy of you know because i i just was questioning everything and it was just like well i'm used to seeing like you know two to two and a half tons to the acre and like what is going on with this and like cursing scott henry's name for like all of southern oregon um in terms of like it just was more fruit than I had ever seen. And it was Pinot Gris, which I had n no exposure to really. Um, and just like doing estimates and kind of like just seeing like, oh my God, like managing those vineyards in a way that's gonna keep them healthy and is just completely different than, than managing like something that's two to four tons to the acre. Um, it just was, it's a whole different ball game to manage some of those. So what prompted the next step for you? Um, next step. Um, so, the, so part of why I decided to leave King was actually I missed the community up here. And so I found myself um, so I moved down to Eugene and I found myself every weekend coming back up to Portland. Um, but ultimately me moving, I lived with Katie, um, from Shehalem. So me moving to Eugene meant that my now husband answered her Craigslist ad to fulfill, like to fill my room. Um, so it like all happened for a lovely reason. Um, but so I, I like missed being up in Portland and I was toying with the idea of like, okay, like, you know, I've kind of like, you know, I left Tony because I was never going to be Tony Reinders for Tony Reinders Consulting. And so I like had maxed out there and then went to King and I didn't love Eugene and I missed the community and I missed Portland and all my friends. Um, and, but I was starting to feel like, okay, am I ever going to, break past this like this threshold of assistant winemaker or is it time to look at like like getting an MBA mm -hmm. so I had kind of actually been thinking like okay I'm gonna go back and like go to business school and kind of look into all of that and I love wine and I love like but am I ever actually gonna break past that to the point where like you're making a living wage and you can actually afford to drink the wines you want to drink. Um, so I had kind of really been looking into that and talking to friends who had gone back to, to school about like, okay, like how do I tackle this? Like what schools do I even look at? Like am I looking at uh, like a wine business MBA or am I like just looking broader? Like what communities do you look into? So I was really, really looking into that and kind of wanted to hit the reset button and kind of 
was like, okay, I, I want to go somewhere where I know I'm going to know what I'm doing for a while just to figure out like my headspace. Um, and so I um, connected again with the same group that owns Argyle and went down to New Zealand to work a harvest at Wither Hills and was like, okay, like, you know, it's mindless, but like, I'll come on and I'll be like a, a, a area lead or like a section lead or whatever. I'll haul hoses, like I'll do all the things, but it like I have no responsibility. Like at the end of the day, like, you know, I'll, I'll be like a great worker for you. Like, cause I know all the things I, you know, I know the importance of like the ads or, you know, like, or double checking my lines. Like I'll be great there, but like, it won't be the stress of like, like I'm not the one doing the final blends. I'm not the one trying to do the logistics on ordering supplies or anything. And so being down there again, it was like, oh no, I love this business. It, again, it was, it was getting me back into the cellar as opposed to like being under my car on the I-5 corridor or like just being, you know, like with with the job at King, I never really felt like I was anywhere long enough to make a difference because I felt like I always was late to the next place I needed to be. Um, so it like it was always hard to keep track of like, okay, this place is, you know, getting ready to blend these wines, and it was it was a lot of like desktop stuff, and then the the opportunity to go down to like be in a cellar again down in New Zealand was like, okay, this is, this is more my speed and like, this is what we're actually doing. This is like all of those different keystrokes to say like, move this wine here. Like this is what, like this is what's actually ha happening on the cellar floor. Um, so that reset button was, was pretty important to me, um, to getting me back to like, okay, I, I do love winemaking. I don't want to go to, to business school. That's, I don't, it's just not gonna, to do that, it's not gonna be the right route for me. Um, and while I was down in New Zealand, I actually got a um, call from Shane Moore, who's our winemaker over at Grand Marine and Zena Crown. And he was, you know, he was cluing me in of like, hey, we have these jobs that are opening up and, you know, Mark Myers, who um, is a friend of mine, is leaving the post that I now occupy. Um, and he was like, this could be, this could be a good fit for you because it's custom crushed, but it's not custom crushed and it's managing, like, and so like I ticked a lot of the boxes that like, they were like, okay, like I've been both on the customer of Custom Crush and running Custom Crush and worked in the Willamette and I've done some larger stuff and done smaller stuff and I worked with some of the vineyards because Tony actually purchased fruit from both Xena and Grammarine when I worked with him and so like I knew a lot of the the things or I, like I knew surface and it was like okay it'll be easy for me to dive into the next layer of those things. Um, so it was just like, you know, it was how so much of this world and like this industry works. It was like right place, right time. But I didn't have a full-time job. It was like June or something when, when Shane reached out and I was like, how don't you have a winemaker at this point, like going into it. Um, and then I came back and like, I think 
I was stateside for maybe like a week or two and then met with Eugenia. So it was like, it was very quick and it was very, very much like right place, right time. Mm -hmm. So did you know Eugenia at that point? I like knew of her more than anything. Um, the gingers in the valley all seem to like, like whenever you see them, it's like a beacon. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew of her. And when I like went to meet with her, she was like, oh yeah, I like, I've seen you. <laughs> um, we stick out. Um, and, but like that, that was kind of it. It's, I never, I never did the, the like, required harvest at Adelsheim that I feel like so many people did. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't, I didn't know her on like any sort of professional level. So. What was your impression of, of her, but also your impression of what Jackson family was doing in Oregon? So I actually like, you know, I always had a really great take on what Jackson was doing and that was partially because of Tony. Mm -hmm. um, so when I worked with Tony still in 2012, he came on to like be a consultant for Jackson. Um, so I kind of knew that they were kicking around the business and again, like Tony is like, he's still like my dad, like, you know, like he embarrasses me when he sings, like all those things, but he, um, he, his, his take on like them being there, he was like, this is really good for the company, like the Valley. Um, and you know, they're doing it the right way. They're, you know, keeping everybody in the vineyards. So I always had a really good impression of Jackson being here and that like, hey, they, they do right mm -hmm. by, by the place, by the people, by the brands, like all, all like the vineyards, all those things they, they do right. And um, so I had a really good impression of that. And then coming in and, you know, meeting Eugenia, it was like, okay, like, she's a power player in, in the Valley very much. Like, she's, she knows what she's talking about. Um, she, like, she's been in so many different aspects of the business. And, like, her and David, it's like, it was like a stamp of approval kind of thing. Like, okay, if this woman is going to work for this company, like, this company is like, they're not going anywhere. You know, she's gonna be like a good, like trusted advisor, mm -hmm. kind of on both sides, both as like, hey Jackson, don't do this for the community, but like also, hey Jackson, this is a good investment, or these are. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a, like that was a, like the team that they had amassed kind of was reassuring to me and like their properties, like again, like I said, I knew both Gray Marine and Zena going in and, and and knew that they were special and so it was kind of like, okay, all signs point to like this is a pretty good opportunity. Um, you know, I knew that there was the like potential for growth and that we were building things and all all of those things. I was like, okay, like this this could be the right time to get in um, with with a company like this. Um, and, and Eugenia, you know, meeting with her, it just, you know, I think I met her on like a Friday afternoon and she was still officing over at Gray Moraine. And I think like we had some rosé and it was like very casual and it was like, okay, we're doing this as kind of like a box checking activity to be like, you're normal <laughs> and you'll pass like, tests or whatever um, 
but she was like, I know you, like I can check your references pretty easily in the valley, like people will vouch for you and 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 for me it was it was like knowing her, knowing Shane, knowing Ken Copperman, um, Letty, like knowing our like the team kind of like behind mm -hmm. the scenes was like okay and you know they had just acquired Penarash when when I joined um, and Lynn is like another one who like I call her Aunt Lynn um, but knowing that like she sold her I guess third born child um, to a company like Jackson like I don't think she entered into that decision lately um, I, I think that was a pretty that was a big, another really big stamp of approval that that she had had gone to Jackson, and mm -hmm. like that was a, a powerful, like in some ways, almost more than even seeing Eugenia, knowing that like Lynn had sold her company, like her like namesake mm -hmm. to Jackson was like, okay, like you're not gonna let you're not gonna let them do anything bad to this. Like you're gonna be here as like a very strong, and she is a very outspoken person. So mm -hmm. that was big. So as you understood it, when you met with Eugenia, when you're when you're offered the job here, what, what was your role going to be? And and how were you going to die? You mentioned it's kind of late in the season. How were you going to how were you expected to sort of dive in? Yeah, um, it was late in the season. The role initially, I think I came on as like assistant winemaker for both Grand Marine and La Crema or something. And that was my first title. Um, and it was weird. It was a weird role because we were still making wine over at Tall the Maple, mm -hmm. which was like a good way to like kind of dip your toe into it um, because it afforded me the opportunity to spend a lot more time in the vineyards. So my role there was to like basically post up over there and oversee winemaking. And so it was a, like I said, it was a lovely little way to kind of be like, like shout out all of these things that had to get done and then be like, ah, I don't have to manage the team. Like just figure out a way and like walk away. Like, um, which I'm sure they loved. Um, but like, so I could like pretty, not leisurely, but like, you know, pretty intensely like walk around and taste and um, like smell and like just really hem and haw that first vintage and like really like pick apart every tank and pick apart every work order that I was doing and then I would just drop like a massive email on them and be like I want this all done in the next two days and like they would have to do it because it was like okay they're scheduling the teams and like what like um, I don't think I was the worst client there but they might disagree um, they like it was a great way to come into it because it like allowed me to see to really like pick apart um, doing things intent on tanks and doing things um, in open top like two ton tanks versus the ten ton tanks and do a lot of trials and a lot of different like it was and we were doing a little bit of the Panarash there that didn't fit at their place. And so it allowed me to like kind of pick apart the different winemaking styles too, especially because a lot of them, including like Suduri, 
we're all drawing from vastly the same mm -hmm. vineyards. Mm -hmm. So it really allowed me the opportunity to like dive into like what is making each of these brands different mm -hmm. when so many of them are coming from the same sourcing um, without having to go to meetings and without having to, you know, go, you know, manage like, okay, this actually has to get done. I need to figure out who's going to do it. I could just like spend hours like looking at analysis and r racing back out to the tank and just not having to like answer to anyone kind of it was it was a nice little nice little way to like kind of ease my way into like overseeing a, a larger winery but also like knowing those vineyards and like mm -hmm. yeah it was it was a nice little segue and you know to see a larger a larger place when we were getting ready to build something mm -hmm. so. so tell me about that that's obviously the next step is there's there's a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of growth coming up at that point for Jackson family here so uh, how did your role evolve and how did the space here evolve um, so that so I joined in like July of 2016 and I think they like actually like had already cleared some of the space here in McMinnville um, and initially the thought was we were gonna retrofit some of the existing office buildings that we'd purchased from Evergreen and now shifted and that may have screwed up the phone. Okay. Um, and we were gonna retrofit some of them, but they had actually been um, like maintenance repair places for like airplanes, mm -hmm. so they still smelled like jet fuel. So we decided that was probably not the best solution for a winemaking facility. And so they, by the time I was on board, it like had already, the footprint had already been decided because it's a prefabricated building. Um, I believe actually like the concrete had been poured and like a lot of the drains, like a lot of it was already like done, dusted, whatever. I basically just kind of got to come in and like say that I don't want that furniture there, like I want that table, you know, like basically like backseat drive mm -hmm. and say like, oh, we don't need that or like, oh, we do need that and like rush a lot of orders. It was chaos. I don't think our construction crew really knew what they were getting themselves into, um, that it was much, it was very much a design build, mm -hmm. um, which I think uh, both Willa Kenzie and Penner Ash now have had the luxury of all of our mistakes. Um, and because we, again, like I think, I think we purchased this property in McRenville in like March of 2016 and we brought in our like grapes for 2017. And it's like a 60, I think it's 63,000 square feet. It's a big winery. Um, so to do that and like the winter between 2016 and 2017, I don't know if you remember, was really snowy. So we had a whole bunch of snow delays and then constructing anything in Oregon, like there's always rain delays. So we had, we like were, I think we got our permitting like as we brought in fruits, basically. It just, the whole thing was was a lot. So for me, it was really interesting because I had, you know, like 
when I had worked with Tony, he had dreamed and like doodled about like doing a, a winery at his property in Carlton, but like that had never come to fruition. Or when I worked at King, we were like talking about building an, an addition and that never, so I had seen all these like kind of start and stop, start and stop. Um, and here it was like the first one that like kind of came to like fruition and everything. But at the same time, it was like, this is the first winery that Jackson has built from like the ground up in a couple decades. Wow. Um, so it is very much like the pilot plant for better or worse for Jackson. And like everybody has their fingerprint somewhere on it. And so we, we've gotten to try a lot of things. Some have been hits and some have been like epic misses. And like we've we've also learned that like it, like it was a design build from the construction project standpoint, but it was also like a design build in terms of like what are our brands still doing and like where are we going or you know so a lot of it is still TBD like we're still figuring out like how are we using that space and. It, it's it's been interesting, but I feel like every year I'm like, okay, what's our next project? And you know, now Alex Nichols from Willkenzie and I are doing a sparkling project out of this winery, but now we've had the frost, and so it's like, well, are we doing a sparkling project? So every year is like, do we have the right piece of equipment to do that the right way at this place? So. Every year it's something different, but it's it's been a, a cool challenge to be part of, and um, it was it was a lot of phone calls, and it was a lot of like double, triple checking, like drawings and quotes, and like crossing our fingers. Like our press got delivered to Stoller, and Stoller got our press. So being like, no, 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 like you need to come back and switch our presses, and. You know, Ben Howe, who's over there, had been my boss at King. And so calling him up being like, I think my press is there. And he was like, oh, I was wondering like why I got an axial feed. And I was like, you didn't, but I did and I need it. Um, so like, just like it was, it was chaos. It was pure chaos. And thankfully, like towards the later half, like as like the rubber was really hitting the road and we really needed to like make sure that it was going to function then like at that point i was allowed to like bring on a team of people to like start cleaning the tanks they had put down and like alex had i, I hired alex and he had gone through the construction pro project over at argyle so like this was number two of three for him and he was able and he's much more mechanically inclined than i am he was able to be like well, that's not gonna work or like we don't need that big of a pump and so he was able to like kind of correct really quickly before before we were really up a creek so yeah it was fun it was a it was a, a very interesting first vintage but we got through it so i think we only blew the moss pump like or the moss line like a couple times so not a big deal like you, you describe it as fun while also giving the impression you'd like to not ever have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I would do it on like a much smaller scale and I would I would do it if if like I was involved 
from the start as opposed to like, oh, I came in in the like a little bit into it. And like there were some things I couldn't like I couldn't undo where the drains had been placed or like some tanks had already been ordered and I was like oh I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that um, and it, so I yeah I would do it if it was smaller if I was there from the start and if it was a longer timeline um, the timeline was like we we very much like put a gun to our heads by being like oh we're gonna be done with the contract over there and we're gonna make wine here in 2017. And it was like, you know, we're all looking at it and we're like, there's a big hole in the ground. Where are we gonna make wine? Um, you know, we all joked about like, well, I guess we could make it at Wings and Waves. Like, there's a big wave pool. Like, like we had, it was very much the joke of like, we have no building. So, yeah. That would make for some interesting punch downs and yeah. overs, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think you could turn on that wave feature yeah. and like it'd be nice and gentle but I have no idea it was there were a lot of jokes about like I have no idea what we're gonna do like when we have no winery to make wine in and you know coming up with contingency plans and um, being like how much extra wine could like could you take Shane how much can you take Kate and like a lot of those are like reaching out to the folks at like Union and like all the other places of like so if we don't have a winery or like being like, okay, 12 and Maple, if we can't actually pull it off, did you fill our space? And so, mm. yeah, it was fun. It was a real fun time. So after that, after that vintage, obviously you've had a few more chances here, yeah. uh, a little bit less chaotic. Tell me mm. about uh, the, the sort of the process as, as it's come, as you sort of figured it out here and what your role is and, and how you feel about the winemaking process here now. Oh, like now it's like, locked and loaded um it's a very well-oiled machine and that's largely in part to um, my team and you know the our cellar master has actually been here since he i stole him from 12th and maple um so he has seen the process over there and seen it here and i think he's bored half the time because he's like we're not nearly as busy as 12th and maple um and he is like now my role is has changed in the sense of like I have a great assistant winemaker who's who's been with me now for three years. He started in the 2019 vintage, came up from our California team. Um, they they now largely run the day to day because they know and I'm the one who comes up with like the crazy like I want to try this like mm, what if I did this instead and and they're very much the ones to be like no or okay like they give me like the different like you can do that but kind of things um they keep me in check a lot um so now i've kind of reverted back to where i started with 12th and maple where i can more leisurely be like the one who comes up with all these crazy ideas at the end and says can we figure out how to do this and they're the ones who are actually executing a lot more or um, kind of get to do a lot more of, like the fun creative side again of hey I think there's something here we should explore like doing a, a Chardonnay from this um, so I get to I get to kind of go back into that world a little bit more or doing a sparkling project where you know, I'm, you know, it's again, full circle back to, to Argyle, 
but in a very different way where like Argyle, when I was working there doing sparkling, I was cleaning tanks, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was the one, I was the one who, oh, you're small, you can get in and clean the disgorging line um, or like those kind of things. And now like, now it's so funny because it's like having like PTSD or something of being like, oh, so that's why we did that. Um, and and like kind of putting those puzzle pieces back together and and just like relearning it, but learning it like, and you know, still reaching out to to Rollin of like, hey, or you know, he was picking up barrels last vintage as we we're pulling in juice samples and being like, will you taste this while you're here? And and having him, you know, just you know, his wisdom of like, don't check your brain at the door, or like, just wait, like you know, just those little things. So now. My role has like kind of moved back into like a creative or like the big plan mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like the day-to-day -day initially, like the first year or two is like, how do we make this place run as efficiently as possible? And now I've, I've kind of switched into like, okay, like we can run it efficiently. They can run it more efficiently than I can. They're out there actually doing the things more. They know you know, we can pump this many barrels in this in these days. Um, and I'm more like just whimsical about like, <laughs> I want to do this or, you know, out in the vineyards, just really getting kind of in the weeds a little bit more. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. You talked earlier about you having a pretty positive impression of what Jackson family was doing in Oregon mm -hmm. before even a lot of us even knew they were really here in Oregon. Uh, obviously that was not everyone's reaction yeah. to Jackson Family coming to Oregon. I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, uh, how you were how you were received uh, as you started working here and how the kind of the transition process went for you? It's still always funny to me, and I like say this anecdote all the time. Um, when people want to like us, they'll call us Jackson Family Wines, and when they don't want to like us, they'll say, oh, KJ. Um, <laughs> and, or like, I'll still get like, oh, you work for KJ, and I'm like, I've actually never made a bottle of KJ. Like, there's no KJ made in, or Kendall Jackson made in Oregon. Um, so I think that's still out there, but like, the people that like, I guess I associate with don't think of it as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I think we've amassed like, some pretty stellar talent from the Valley that work for Jackson. So you kind of almost like have to start to be like, okay, it can't be that bad of a place. And like, these people can't be that bad. And I think there's also, so there's like strength in numbers on that, on that front. Um, I think there's also like this, this like, you know, Eugenia's out there, all of us are out there kind of saying like, yeah, we may be the big bad wolf, but like, we're not that bad. All of us are like, like with the, actually with the, the exception being Shane, all of us came up in the Oregon wine industry. So it's still like, we recruited local talent, mm -hmm. like, you know, um, like Kramer came from Serene and had always kind of made his home up here in the Willamette. I had always been here. Like Kate was like born and raised as a coastie. Mm. Um, and so like all of us had been around for so long in, in the Willamette. It's not like we were bringing in outsiders who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and, and so I think that is hopefully starting to switch a little bit. And 
I think people are learning with like we have some a little bit of brand power and like we have yeah just a touch um, we have like to, like they're learning how to use us as like a, a good a, a good like we have some good resources um, when the when the fires hit and like the, the thing is the Oregon community is like so collaborative but when the fires hit like we were pretty fortunate I was super fortunate because I was out on maternity leave <laughs> so I could like be like oh sorry um, but they when the fires hit we actually have our own internal lab so we weren't like in the queue to get into ETS so we could send to our own internal lab down in California and get like the full smoke panels and it's not like we were like hoarding that data like we were sharing it with our neighbors being like hey like our vineyard that's like adjacent to yours or like this block that like we share these are the numbers we're getting like things aren't looking great like what are you doing and I mean again like people are learning like that like we like all of us are like nice people I think um, we did we were lucky enough to I was fortunate enough to not have to bottle anything for La Crema um, which was so lucky because we unfortunately for that brand have a, a riper style of fruit and I wasn't able to let things hang, obviously because of the smoke. And like, so there was nothing that was gonna help the brand equity. It was gonna only hurt the brand La Crema and it was gonna hurt brand Willamette Valley. There are other people who weren't, like didn't, weren't in the same boat. And there were people who were able to pick before then, whose fruit was ripe before then or whose style lens. Um, but I think Jackson as a whole, like, has been pretty, like, they understood that. And, like, our sales and marketing team understood that, like, some brands were able to, some vineyards didn't get as impacted. Like, some people were, but, like, unfortunately, we, a lot of our stuff wasn't able to. Um, and so we, since we were able to be like, okay, we can't bottle anything, but we used a whole, like, a thousand gallons worth of wine that we had because we brought it all in and we ran like a whole battery of tests on it and we invited like everyone we knew like to be like hey come over like we have we tried like the SRX we tried differential RO we tried regular RO we like we tried all these things come taste it like see if you think it's moving the needle like we did it all blind like we did the QR codes that like or all the rage, mm -hmm. like we we did all the things, and we were you know we were like, you know we aren't we aren't bottling any of this, but we might as well know what it's doing. Or like, Eric, this last vintage in 2021, smoked his vines, and like literally brought in like a barbecue smoker or something. <laughs> they tented their vines and they smoked it to like mimic a smoke event and then treated it um, with ozone to see like, is that gonna help us? Because, you know, we, we transport fruit across like the country with like in these systems and it helps, it preserves, it helps it like, and so we thought like, oh, but like we're a company that's big enough that can do those things, that has a whole 
department like that's dedicated to continuous education mm -hmm. and to like researching because again we're a big enough company that unfortunately our neighbors to the south like our like my colleagues down there have had fires and so we were able to be like okay here's what we know mm -hmm. um and so i think people are learning to use us in the right ways or like i don't know it's still like touch and go for sure um but i like i i think it is always interesting when somebody's like, oh, do you still work for KJ? And I'm like, oh, I've never worked for KJ. But, um, and so then you you kind of see it, like, depending on, like, well, what do you want from me? How are you going to, what are you going to, like, refer to me as? So. Well, along that line, obviously, the the, the Oregon sort of, the, the, the expansion didn't stop with, with Kendall Jackson or Jackson family moving to town. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, a big change in the last few years in the industry. Tell me about how you've seen the industry change uh, through the past few years and, and what it, what it kind of looks like to you now and, and moving forward. Yeah, I think, um, obviously, Jackson wasn't the only ones, and, like, they weren't the first ones. Like, DDO was, mm -hmm. or Domain Drone was here before. Mm -hmm. Um, and like there just are more and more and I think in some ways like well in, in so many ways it like I guess legitimizes us and like legitimizes all of what we've been doing and what we all knew to be true or like really thought to be true um, and like I would like to think that Jackson at least played a part in that and like getting it out there as like some of these other ones have followed um, like with with Constellation moving to town, I would like to think that like we we helped like say like put it on the map like we got more wine out to the three tier market, um, to, and like that people across the country or around the globe are taking notice that like oh there's like actually something unique and special and different about the Willamette Valley, and so I I like still think it's exciting I know. I know there are lots of people who are like, oh man, like the price of fruit is going up, going up, or you know, wine is going up, and all these things. Like, and it's something that, like, you know, I I talked about before with with King of, of trying to like knock down some of those barriers to entry, like the price point to entry. But like some of these brands that are coming in, like the Jacksons or the Constellations. They like. They can almost spread those costs over some other things, that are going to still help get it out to the broader market. And you know, people aren't going to like. Just. I don't know that many people that are just. Love La Crema, but like I don't think there are going to be like La Crema Willamette Valley is the only Willamette Valley I'm ever going to drink. Mm -hmm. Like I still think like okay they're going to be like Willamette Valley La Crema like well they're going to accidentally pick up La Crema Willamette Valley because they're going to think they're picking up Sonoma Coast which I'm fine with, <laughs> and then they're going to be pleasantly surprised that it's Willamette Valley, and then they're going to look and say hmm like oh this one's from Willamette Valley too, like I should try that like and you know it's going to be an Illahi or it's going to be like somebody else who like might not have the brand power the marketing power to like cover all of these different places or they're gonna see they're gonna see it on a wine list when they're in florida and say like okay like i've had a, a pinot from willamette or however they're gonna mispronounce it but they're gonna say like 
oh, it was pretty good. Like, it's not going to be a deterrent. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I think there's only positives that are coming. And, like, yeah, I mean, I can still speak as, like, working at a tiny producer that it's like, oh, it's a bummer, like, a little bit that, like, all these great vineyards are getting, like, gobbled up mm -hmm. or whatever, and are we going to get back into them? Or, like, are we still going to be able to have a single vineyard designate mm -hmm. from that if, like, we don't own that vineyard? Um, and that, like, I guess, mm -hmm. 2BD, like, I, I don't know. So, like, I, you know, I have to trust the fact that, like, there are so many people who are like so ingrained in the fabric of the Willamette Valley that like the integrity is so strong. And like I look at our own Jackson family team and I know that like we do not make wine by committee and like we are not told like, oh, this is what you do mm -hmm. to make this wine. Mm -hmm. And I have to trust that like so many people are just going to stick to their guns mm -hmm. of like, nope, that doesn't work for us. And that's actually one of the most powerful, like, tools, assets that, like, Eugenia brings to our team for, like, the winemaking side of the Oregon team is just kind of being contrarian to, like, some of the things that, like, you know, like, they're like, oh, you, you guys should get a little higher yield. And Eugenia's like, it doesn't work in Oregon. Like, it does not work. Like, or like higher yield either, either in the vineyard or like mm -hmm. from, from juice. Like, she just is like, she is feisty. Um, so that, that really, it helps us like kind of, she will, she will go to bat when it, when it, when it counts for quality, especially like, the Willamette, when like her and David have done so much work, she's not gonna, yeah. I have to like trust the integrity of like those people who are really, really like the ambassadors and and kind of the ones who are like, you know, taking it to the the steps of wherever, like the Harry Peterson. Like I have to mm -hmm. trust that that the old guard is like they they you know they may be like you know we're we're getting older, but like. We're still not quiet, mm -hmm. so. I want to go back quick, too quickly to a, a point you made earlier. You're talking about working at King and, and, and working at some of those, uh, seeing Twelfth and Maple and seeing the, the sort of the mass quantity wines and thinking about both both affordability and, mm -hmm. and sort of reach of, mm -hmm. for those wines for people who, in, in your life who may not be able to, to yeah. access other wines. It's a really interesting point to me, and I'm, and I'm curious, as you're thinking about making wine at that scale, especially a brand like La Crema, which is, which is everywhere, yeah. um, how do you sort of focus, on, what, what's your focus on for making sure that what you're putting out there is a good representation of the Miami Valley? How do you kind of, what are you trying to get out of those bottles? What are you hoping people will, will get when they buy out a La Crema Pinot Noir? So for a La Crema, like the, the consumer there, like, has come to, like, really, really, ex like, they have expectations for a brand like La Crema, and, like, we haven't thus far broken brand La Crema. I was actually just chatting with the director of La Crema, and he was like, you know, in some ways, it's, like, both a, both a blessing and a curse that, like, we can do no wrong, but, like, we don't want to be the ones to do something wrong. Um, and so... La Crema, like, they expect fruit, and, like, they expect, like, this plush, round, like, very fruit-driven, 
mine, but then you throw in Willamette Valley, which unlike California, like we have a lot more variability in our vintages and our acid is like one of the things that like the the feminine, like a little bit more feminine lighter on it, like its feet, like wine is what makes it so Oregon. Mm -hmm. And and so I think it's still like a nice little balancing act of like you're trying to make sure that you you like you know, for me, it's like, okay, I pick a little bit later than I would if I was making a wine for myself. You know, it's a couple days later. Um, so that like, it, it gets like more fruit intensity, but then I still need to like, I balance it out with other picks of like, okay, but this one is like, this, the fruit never quite gets to like that, that set, that, that intensity. So I'm gonna use that as like my little like pull a nod to the Willamette of like, we have a nice acid through line here. Um, and so like, but then, you know, getting it out to the broader, and it's something that like I really, this year on the heels of 2020 when we didn't make any wine, then the 2021 being told like, okay, we need it in the market. Like we need it to go from your bottling line straight to the shelves at like Fred Meyer or Safeway. Is, is something that like as a winemaker, like, no, <laughs> like, no, like, and I, it's been tough. Um, but that's like why we kind of played around with like some of the things over in the winery using mocks and like just getting things more ready to be out there and know that like, I want to make a wine that like with Acrobat or with um, La Crema that's ready to be drink like I want somebody to be able to open that bottle right away I don't want to have to I don't want to have to put a big label on it that says like okay buy this now but now I want you to wait like a couple years mm -hmm. to drink it mm -hmm. I and it's you know something we deal with with our sales teams of like I want you to hold it for release for X number of months or a year or whatever for it to come out of the weird bottle shock stage and a brand like La Crema, like I just have to assume that they won't, they won't hold it. Um, so I have to be confident in it going to bottle and being at somebody's table like two weeks later, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. And so it's again, it's it's something where I always like I'm my own worst critic, as I'm sure most winemakers are where it, you know, I'm always like, oh man, it's a little tight. I would love for us to wait a little bit and then just be like, okay, there's this many positives and two negatives or whatever. And I have to trust that like, the positives are gonna outweigh the negatives and that at the end of the day, I'm not gonna hurt La Crema and I'm not gonna hurt Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. And if, and like that's why for me, I didn't feel I could do that with the 2020 vintage. I felt like I was gonna hurt one of them beyond, beyond repair. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't feel I could comfortably do it with when my fruit was able to be harvested. Um, and and getting that, like, I'm thankfully at a price point that 
hopefully most people can afford to buy um, with La Crema, and, but they're still getting a really quality wine that I feel like they're gonna be happy they spent their $25, $30 on. And it's, you know, it, it ranges from like, you know, is it a Tuesday night wine? I don't know. Is it like a Saturday special occasion wine? I don't know. Like, but it's, it's hopefully something that like, there's something for everyone. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna be, it's gonna be a good representation. They're not gonna be disappointed. They spent their money on it. They're not gonna be disappointed that somebody brought it to their house as like, you know, a housewarming gift. It, it's like, it's dependable. Mm -hmm. We're a dependable brand with a Toyota. <laughs> you turn that wine over and it's gonna start every time. It's great, yeah, it's great. <laughs> What's next for you? What's what's in the future for you, uh, you know, personally, professionally, and, and for Jackson family here in Oregon? Oh man, um, I guess professionally, personally, um, you know, we're working on some cool projects. I'm excited to do some sparkling. I think I alluded to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really trying. Actually, there's a sign right above your head that says Jory. Um, I'm really diving into. We purchased. When we purchased Willa Kenzie back in 2016, it came with two estate vineyard properties, one of which was Willa Kenzie, and the other is Jory Hills in the Dundee Hills. Um, and so really diving in to learning that vineyard with our director of vineyards and kind of, again, working alongside Tony Reinders. Um, and just like picking that vineyard apart and like just like completely peeling it back and so that's been really fun peeling it back both for still pinot chard and then also for sparkling chardonnay um from that so those ones have been have been really what's been occupying my time is just like you know taking away the the la crema being a forty thousand case um production and getting back into like a 200 and 300 case volume and like just like the nuance of literally i think we decided to take a quarter of one barrel yesterday for a blend um so my team will like that um so that's like professionally that's kind of where i'm at is just being like i don't i can do this i can run a large place but like I want to. I want to be out there again, like tapping and sampling, and and knowing my barrels a little bit more on a smaller scale, and just kind of leaving leaving some of the like really heavy lifting to somebody else, and me saying like, okay, I'll put the sticker on, kind of thing. Um, so just kind of and and letting. I think it's more also like, you know, actually Lynn was one of the people to tell me this. Um, that like as I was coming up, like I was, you know, always trying to like get more responsibility given to me from from managers and winemakers and whatnot of like, okay, let me do it, go home for the night. And and both Lynn and Kate, like both Lynn, both Kate and I are, are mothers of young kiddos at this point. And and like both of them have kind of been good sounding boards to be like, okay, it's time to like pass the torch on to the next the next generation and do better than what was done to you kind of thing of like, I'm gonna leave at like 5.30 and be home with my kid and you know what, like it'll get done tomorrow or you'll do it. You might not do it exactly how I would do it, but like you'll do it. 
Um, so I think that's my, those are my big professional challenges are just kind of like letting some of the, the bigger stuff go and be like, I'm still doing like the things that I hold dear of like, I'm doing the pick decisions, I'm doing like, you know, when are we draining and pressing, but like letting some of like the other things go and being like, you can do it, like you should do it. I don't need to be here. Um, and, and my team has been, has been really good at like kicking me out of the winery or being like, yeah, we don't need you in the best possible way, <laughs> but we don't need you. Um, so those are, those are my big, my big plans, I guess. And I am, you Thank know, you. just hoping that I'm still involved in some of like our next plans. And we like, you know, we're a pretty collaborative team up here in terms of who, like, who has the bandwidth to do what and who wants to be involved in like looking at vineyards or, you know, like who's got their next crazy idea of what's going to happen and yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Nice. That's kind of it. All right. What's well, yeah. all the questions that I have for That's you? That's great. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have know. covered? I have no idea. I think we're good, right? <laughs> I feel like we're good. Did we get everything? Okay, good. We covered a lot. Okay, good. Thank you so much for yeah. your time, for your, you. for, your, for your stories, for your generosity here today, and yeah. uh, we will go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.